Without the ones like you, who work tirelessly to keep things running, everything would suddenly stop. Hospitals, factories, schools, and power plants, they all depend on you. No matter the weather, emergency, or time of day, you're the ones who get it done. At Granger, we're here for you with professional grade industrial supplies. Count on real time product availability and fast delivery. Call clickgranger.com or just stop by. Granger for the ones who get it done. Hi, this is Rachel on Recovery. We've got a special guest with us named Jim Bush, and he's going to tell us a little bit about himself and then he's going to answer some questions for us. Yeah, hi. Uh, my name is Jim Bush. Um, I'm a licensed marriage and family counselor um, and have been treating folks with uh, trauma uh, and overseeing their care uh, for about the last 33 years. And uh, now I'm in uh, management and oversee programs that serve those folks. Okay. Um, first question, what got you into the mental health field? Well, my grandfather and my father are physicians, and uh, quite frankly, chemistry was not my best friend. And so uh, looked at alternatives, was interested in working with people and helping people, um, and uh, signed up for some psychology classes, um, and then just really enjoyed that work. Um, got my bachelor's degree at Indiana University, and then I went to California to get my master's degree out in Berkeley. And while I was in school, I got a job at a group home. Uh, I knew I wanted to work with young people. But the group home was really working with uh, kids for th about three months at a time. Um, and nearly all of them had been uh, removed by probation at, or Department of Children's Services and had experienced a great deal of trauma. And from that point, just really loved working with folks that had lots of trauma, um, and trying to figure out um, the best ways to serve those young people. Tell us when you saw the correlation between addiction and trauma. I think that's a fascinating question because when you work with teenagers primarily, um, you, you're already, especially when I started my career in the late 80s, you have a fair amount of substance use, uh, amongst young people already. So it was normalized in terms of drugs and alcohol with people, uh, with, uh, with adolescents. And so it took probably a little longer for me to kind of identify the direct correlation. I think when it hit me, it was uh, kind of an aha moment that, of course they would, because people that are experiencing trauma don't like to reenact, feel the pain of the trauma, and so the easiest way to, to address it is to kind of numb the pain, not think about the, uh, the flashbacks, the experience of both, uh, well, all three, the physical, sexual, and then neglect issues. And so um, I think the same thing would hold true on the adult side of substance use, that it, it took maybe longer than it should for people to really make that correlation that many of the folks that have substance use uh, a disorder uh, w that they also had had trauma. And so it would probably be in the early 90s where we really just started to see um, things like the ACE study, the Adverse Childhood Experience Study, that began to more directly make the link and then uh, really try and uh, look at ways that we were missing the boat. Were we treating trauma? 
when it was, you know, uh, that was driven to substances or, you know, we're, a lot of times we were missing one or the other. So we're treating the substance use without knowing the core issue of the trauma or retrieving the trauma without seeing the predictability of the substances. So it would probably be early 90s that we really started to see a, a more direct correlation and a lot of people miss getting misdiagnosed. Fair enough. Um, what has been your experience with trauma? In terms of treating trauma? Uh, like, I guess that's a good place to start. Yeah, so, you know, I think uh, I've done about 20-plus years of trainings on trauma. And the one thing we know is that two people can have an identical experience and, and have different interpretations of the trauma. The one th example that I would often give is you and I could be in a car um, and somebody run a stoplight and hit us, both in the same accident. One of us might only have heart palpitations when we go through that intersection in the future, and the other one might not leave their home or ride in a car based on their experiences of the incident and of their past and those kinds of things. So it's really hard to say, you know, what is a traumatic event? Obviously, some are more clear cut. Um, but I think a lot of times um, there's uh, you have to kind of check in for an individual whether it was trauma. So as I started doing these trainings and giving examples, I, I would say, I didn't uh, really think of myself as someone that experienced trauma, but uh, when I was a senior in high school, our house burned down, and I was we were I was going to school when I noticed the fire and found that um, there was a situation where uh, my family was on a boat that another boat didn't see, and it hit us basically cracked the boat that we were on, and so. Those, I think we probably all could say we had traumatic events. I would say none of which kind of left big lingering effects. And the work that I usually do are with people is more complex trauma, which would really be not like a simple trauma would be one incident that led to, you know, trying to get over it or past it, like my house burning down. Uh, whereas complex trauma could be, you know, threats of physical violence and physical violence for years, whether the violence occurred or not, um, still would be traumatic. Or in an environment where in your neighborhood, in your house, in your family, people are actively hitting each other, slapping each other, abusing each other, using substances. So uh, I, I think it was just uh, really that uh, – um, I felt like we could do better in treating trauma. You know, I went to school in the mid-'80s in Berkeley, and one of the things that, that I was trained on was really to have clients re, uh, relive their trauma experience, so basically tell you exactly what happened, how it happened, and, and how, you know, in detailed uh, steps – and then kind of reinforce that, well, now you're safe, you don't have to be scared. Well, that really was an angle that didn't seem to work. When I started that after the training, it seemed like it re-traumatized people. It didn't seem to have positive functional outcomes. So I guess part of what drove me was to find how do we do a better job of helping people um, 
survive trauma, thrive after trauma, and then just the sheer experience of how many people in the general society have, you know, that have experienced trauma. And I think that's what the ACE study also shows that, you know, such a high number of people uh, across all, you know, socioeconomic uh, areas has really been affected by that. So when I would do my trauma trainings, it'd be like, why do we need to know? Because it's pervasive, right? And then really the thing that, uh, that clinicians want to know when I'm doing the training is, you know, what do we do differently? How do we help them get through this trauma? And it nev- the answer I never came to was what I was originally trained on in terms of reliving steps of that trauma. Yeah, no, I can totally say that because, I mean, reliving it over and over again does not help you get over trauma. Um, Right. It's almost the opposite, that you're already reliving it. It's like how do you, one, like center yourself around that? And really what we spend a lot of time with now is triggers. Like if you know your triggers, um, and I, I spend a lot of time with teachers, principals, uh, schools trying to help educate them on understanding triggers that they may be a trigger, whether it's somebody that might have perpetrated on them or a parent or or whatever. That uh, a lot of times um, it's helpful when somebody says a child says, "Hey, you remind me of so and so, an aunt, a teacher, a coach," to really find out what does that mean to that kid. It could be a very positive thing. Or a lot of times it's you remind me of somebody that did harm and then they're responsive to that. So why do you always get sick or get kicked out of math class? Maybe you have a math learning disability or maybe you are reminded of somebody who perpetrated on you or maybe both. Or maybe it's the time of day that you were, uh, you know, maybe after school at four o'clock. Now you're in school at four o'clock. Maybe it's the time of day that triggers that uh, kind of subconscious sense of doom or something bad happening. So we really now look at, you know, how do you predict it before it comes and then have a plan when it comes on how to get through the situation so that you can, you know, keep functioning at your daily, uh, through your daily life. Yeah. And that's, that can take a long time to master. Absolutely. Absolutely. And it depends on you know, how long the, the like the simple trauma when there's a, sing, uh, a single incident that can, some people don't go to treatment at all. Sometimes it's a couple of months, whereas if you've been traumatized for years and years or in that experience, it, it, you know, you may be triggered throughout your lifetime and just need to understand uh, that was a trigger. I, I did this to care for myself. And we really see things as, you know, triggers, behaviors, and consequences and we do that for anger, substance use, or trauma. And really, you know, it's really trying to choose a behavior that doesn't hurt you and doesn't hurt anybody else. And when you do that, you should have a positive consequence. Whereas if you hurt yourself or somebody else when you're being triggered, then you usually will have a, a, a long-term negative consequence. Yes. And those triggers are real and need to be validated. For sure. And most people do not know what they are. Sometimes they're smells, sometimes they're sounds, sometimes, you know, one, I had a great example of the Sandra Bloom. 
is an individual who developed the sanctuary model, and she had come to my hospital and, and gave a talk on it. And she gave this perfect example about triggers that I shared often. And she said I was in with my client for her first session. She had lots and lots of trauma. She was very triggered, uh, had a great session. She really worked through a lot of things. And when she left my door, she was feeling very calm and under control and so much better. However, as she's walking past the front office, uh, they flag her down and says, oh, you didn't bring your insurance card. And if you don't bring it again, then you, we're not going to be able to see you. So that kind of triggered her anxiety of now I found the help, but I don't know. I can't, might not be able to get it. Then she uh walked outside the front of the building, and there was a men's group that was on break that was smoking cigarettes. Well, both men and cigarette smell were triggers for her. So she was heightened by this congregation of men, uh, triggered again. And then as she looked out to the parking lot, it was dark. There was no security guard. And then she was once again triggered by the fear of being in the dark and being attacked. And so what I always say is two things. One, we can't, you know, prevent all triggers, but as organizations, we can be mindful of those things being very common triggers. I mean, you know, most hospitals don't have, don't allow you to smoke within so many feet or whatever already, but trying, so after that, we were, I mean, we had an, a, a building that had both trauma victims and substance use where there was a lot of smoking and a lot of men. And so organizations, when you become trauma-informed, you really, I mean, we were going to spend $20,000 to put lights and in, in, uh, in the parking lots and get, uh, and get security guards because we wanted to be a trauma-informed organization. So once again, it's like you can be triggered easily and quickly, uh, and then the key is how do you ground yourself? What do you do internally to stabilize yourself? And then what, you know, especially as a, as a provider to people that, that uh, experience a lot of trauma, we want to be mindful of a safe environment. And so, um, you know, most grants these days uh, and most funding funders will require that you're a trauma-informed organization, and these are examples of being trauma-informed. So uh, trying to be mindful of how to keep somebody in that sense of feeling safe. Well, that's excellent that they're making that a requirement. Absolutely. And and it's really been my passion throughout my, my career. Um, and, and like you originally had asked, you know, why did I get drawn to that? I don't. I don't have any like friends or family. It was an experience that I had never experienced, but it really felt like they were people that needed good care, uh, were fully functioning, and if they could, you know, learn how to manage this, that they could really have a better life. Uh, and my goal was always like, how do we give people that we serve a better tomorrow, whatever that is, right? And so uh, to me, it's just, you know, I grew up in a strong faith-based family that really, you know, pushed how the, to be helpful to others. And that happened to be my course of, of what fit for me. 
my grandma, every time I saw her, she lived to be 101, but every time I saw her, she would say, I'm praying for those boys you work with. And, and I never worked just with boys, but somehow in her mind, she thought that. So every night I go to, to bed praying for those boys that you worked with that had had abuse, you know. And so uh, it, it's just something that I have always had a passion for and and feel blessed and honored to continue to be able to do that work. Um. What has been your experience with BPD? So borderline personality disorder uh, is, it goes hand in hand with abuse. Um, and so back in the, the group home in Berkeley, you know, that's where I first got exposed to it at a time where I was learning about it in school. Um, and there was, um, I'll never forget this case, it was a 11-year-old and a 12-year-old brother and sister that had been locked in a closet for over a year, and they had been fed dog food under the door, and so they had defecated and lived that entire time in there, and they were severely abused and damaged, and they both exhibited signs uh, of borderline personality disorder, and so it's really generally characterized by early age trauma, oftentimes uh, with a primary caregiver. And so um, the parts that should be attaching to a primary caregiver or a person in their lives tend to not, um, you know, kind of stick together and complete themselves. And so people with BPDs generally spend their entire life struggling in relationships. Um, what they crave and want the most is what they're all most fearful of. The book, I Hate You, Don't Leave Me, characterizes it very well and simply. Um, and so it's, it's usually characterized by early age trauma. Um, and then it manifests itself generally throughout a lifetime because it's, it's the key ingredient of the relationships with other people. And so generally almost all the people will say they feel this giant hole inside. They think that what would fix it would be a close relationship, a bond. And yet, when they get even close to being personable, connecting with somebody, they get very fearful. They have what's called real or abandoned, I mean, real or imagined abandonment experiences. So even if, let's say you roll your eyes or you blink or something like that, someone might take that as you're rejecting me, you didn't accept me the way I was. So it's this, it's this uh, you know, a roller coaster ride of, of trying to get close, but if you get at all a semblance of that, so you just have a, a normal day, then they generally turn around very quickly if you got too close and they shred you to pieces. They push you away very hard and very clearly. And so they generally tend to have very difficult times with their primary relationships. And so um, it's not that people can't get married and don't, but they generally have very volatile, very challenging relationships. And so, you know, based on that, a therapy is a is a uh, therapeutic relationship, right? And so um, it, it's really important that people with borderline personality find somebody, a clinician, that is well-trained in that because the symptoms are very difficult to manage. They will project those feelings onto the therapist. 
And so a lot of people have adverse feelings because of this projection of feelings. Um, but it's really like it's, it's probably one of the most challenging disorders to experience. So you can't get close to anybody. Uh, people tend to go on buying sprees or sex sprees or all these different things to try and fill that emptiness. And so, you know, as much as it's difficult in the field to work with people uh, that have borderline personality disorder, it's something that's, you know, far more difficult to have yourself. Um, and so you live your life uh, striving for something you'll never get, which is close, safe relationships. So, so that sometimes it's real abandonment. Somebody leaves you because you went off on them too many times. Sometimes it's imagined, but if you ever, if you have a relationship with somebody with borderline personality, if you're having a good day and feeling close and say, hey, that was really nice, you should be anxious about the other side. Like, it's better to pull back because if you get too close, you'll be pushed back one way or another, generally by negative comments, things that uh, are reactive. So in some ways, they're extremely self-centered. Every response is based on their own needs, um, and yet they're also very externally based where if they think you're going to leave them or hurt them, they're going to hurt you first. So it's a very volatile experience um, and very challenging, but we have some you know, well-established evidence-based practices that will help people manage those, those, um, you know, the, the, re the regulate their mood. Yeah. That's really where they have the problem is this dysregulation. It's all over the place. Um, what's the best treatment for those with borderline personality? So, uh, probably the, you know, the most effective one is, would be uh, dialectical behavior therapy by Marsha Linehan. She, that was, she came out with that about 25, 30 years ago. Um, and it's really, it really helps people look at these explosions or these incidents and kind of track backwards where was the trick, where was the point that I could have done something differently. So, you know, it might be that you go back and say, oh, well, you rolled your eyes, so I knew that meant you rejected me, and that's why I started calling you names, right? So it's kind of a, it's kind of a look backwards at this mood regulation and then say, oh, when this happens, if I'm around somebody that I know triggers me, then how am I going to handle it when it feels like they're rejecting me? Because that experience of rejection is going to lead to – maybe an explosion, an outburst, uh, or even self-harming. Like, that, that's another st strategy in some ways that you hurt me so bad, now I'm going to end my life and I'm going to cut or I'm going to hurt myself to make you feel bad, like, about that I, that you rejected me. Does that make oh, sense? Oh, yeah, most definitely. What's the best advice for family members in uh those with borderline personality, like to support borderlines? Yeah, that's a really good question because generally, so, you know, lots of people with borderline, they're, they're extraneous, they're superficial friends, 
the people that they know, co-workers sometimes are never affected by that. Like they're really good to them, but anything that's primary and important to them. So you're talking about family and friends. Um, they're going to get that roller coaster. They're going to get that more than anybody else. The more primary, the more you're going to get the negative pieces of that because they want something more out of it. Like if it's a you know a coworker, they're just trying to you know not stick out at work or whatever. And so, I mean, really a couple things is one, trying to understand what it looks like, like reading, I hate you, don't leave me. Understanding this dynamic of closeness is both good and bad. Um, realizing that it's symptoms of trauma. And then part of it is, is regulating your amount of time, um, you know, in like investing in that process. Right. So, uh, like people, no one's going to, no matter how much you love or care about that person, you can't just go in and fix it. It's not like that. So people that, uh, so in some ways setting appropriate limits, um, like if you say, Hey, call me if you're having a bad day, you might get called every day. Right. And so then set limits to say, Hey, uh, um, when you have those, let's try A, B, and C. Count to ten, read your book, and then go listen to your music or whatever. Try to have a, a strategy to help them deal with that real or imagined uh, rejection or abandonment. Um, and trying to be patient, but, you know, when people come into care, the family and friends, usually the spouse, is really tired and ready to be done, right? And so it's almost a self-fulfilling prophecy. If I trash you enough, you're going to leave me, which I knew, which the whole time I knew you were going to leave me anyways, right? So then the the imagined abandonment becomes real. Um, and so, um, you know, like I, I worked with somebody who, you know, used to, she, she got in therapy at 15, very severely borderline symptoms. And, you know, she was married for five or six years and she would just straight out say, well, why did you engage with me? You knew that was just my borderline rage. But when, she, so like this perception of you understand, why are you doing that? Well, they take, they're extremely uh, good at knowing what people's buttons are, what they, what means the most to them. And in those moments of rejection, they push on whatever will hurt you the most. So they're experts at hurting people. Right. And it's, it's to them like trying to even the score, trying to protect themselves, but it's very damaging in relationships. So, you know, trying to do that kind of whatever fair fighting thing, like let's agree not to, you know, call my mom names or say horrible things about um, whatever, you know, like if you think you're very honest uh, and that's the one trait that you value the most, then they would say, all you do is lie. And they would come up with things and they almost could convince you that you did lie. Like they're very, they gender generally are very good at this line of thinking and understanding what drives people. But then when they're hurt, they go to hurt you. And so that, so I guess the biggest thing is try and get them help with somebody that understands borderline personality. Um, and and manage the boundaries very tightly. They generally tend to have no boundaries, so they'll they'll come in too close and like talk to a child about their own sex life or want to do drugs with a fourteen year old, or they might be the opposite, where they're just you know being sexually active in front of their kids. Like 
They just don't have a sense of where they stop and where other people begin. And so set limits, you know, don't like engage for hours trying to fix it while they're crying because they're going to kill themselves if you hang up. Like that's the kind of drama. And yet the the serious side of it is many people do suffer enough that they take their own lives. And yet um, they might have been perennially suicidal for 10 or 15 years. So you have to take it seriously at the same time. It's like, uh, it's, it's hard not to uh, just feel like it's another incident. No, it's uh it can be very difficult, especially, I mean, dealing with suicide day in and day out can be very difficult for family members and friends and people get burned out. hundred percent. Yeah. And, uh, and yet it's not like, I mean, it's not like they're making it up. They are feeling very, lots of pain, um, and generally learn that that's what will get the most reaction. Um, and they're trying to soothe their pain, right? And so it's, it's most important to help somebody with the borderline personality find something that soothes that pain or eases that pain, but there's generally not a lot that works. Because this yeah. it's this very early age trauma that can never get fixed. It's just always empty. I mean, I, I don't know if there's been much research done on EMDR or neurofeedback or any mm-hmm. of that for borderlines. And, and if I know antidepressants can be help just manage things. Right. And they generally have, tend to have a lot of anxiety as well. Um, but yeah, EMDR has a lot of, uh, you know, positive outcomes related to trauma. I, uh, what, what fits well for people with borderline tr- is that it's not kind of, uh, emotionally delving very deeply into that experience. It's more about kind of retraining the brain to have a positive pathway that, that doesn't, you know, it's at a more subconscious level. So that's kind of effective. There's trauma-focused uh, cognitive behavioral therapy that has some, some good efficacy. Um, the thing with the DBT is it was designed for adults. It's pretty, And so, like, uh, you know, an individual that uh, doesn't have a lot of uh, insight, they may struggle with it, or kids. And so it was probably about 10 years ago began to be adapted to kids because it's really a little too complex, the full model. So it's good that they've done that. And so there's trainings on that now, but, uh, but yeah, EMDR trauma focused CBT, uh, and, uh, and DBT are probably the primary, but like, you don't want to just go to somebody, a generalist that hasn't worked with borderline personality before and somebody that's a therapist if you say you know you have that and you say you know i have borderline personality would you be able to help me they should refer you to somebody that has it otherwise you're just gonna probably not make things worse but make things more complicated because you might be feeding the wrong things not realizing um you know the boundaries that are being crossed um and try and kind of nurture somebody to wellness, and that will never work. Well, that's it. Um, thank you for being on my show, and uh, thanks for being patient with all <laughs> the technology issues we've had. Mostly on my end, I will say. 
But yeah, I'm glad we were able to do this. This was uh, this was great, and uh, I appreciate the opportunity to share my thoughts. And certainly, they're mostly just my thoughts, right? And and my life experiences, and they're not everybody's. But I'm pretty passionate about them for me, and so I appreciate the opportunity to share it. Thanks again, Jim, for being on our show. He's coming back next week to finish talking about trauma, and he will be on the A score. And we are very appreciative of his time. And make sure you tune in on your favorite podcast platform and always follow us on your favorite social media platform. And always tune in on Thursdays. Thanks for listening. For the ones who work hard to ensure their crew can always go the extra mile and the ones who get in early so everyone can go home on time. There's Granger, offering professional-grade supplies backed by product experts so you can quickly and easily find what you need. Plus, you can count on access to a committed team ready to go the extra mile for you. Call, click Grainger.com, or just stop by. Granger for the ones who get it done.